If they're down 3-1 in the middle of the second period against, let's say, at home on the road at game uh, uh, in game four, I'm not counting them out. That was Bill Bradley, assistant managing editor of the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and this is the J Reels Podcast. What's happening, people? Doing well? At peace? Are you happy? That's a question we don't ask one another often enough, but wherever you're at, whether you had a great day or a rough one, let me be a part of your escape as I entertain and inform you on lots that's going on in the sports universe. You're listening to the J Reels Podcast, and I'm your host, J Reels. If this is your first rodeo, welcome aboard. I appreciate and thank you for taking the time to download, stream, however you may be listening to this podcast. And if this isn't your first time around the track, let me welcome you back as I deliver the latest on what's taking place on the diamond, gridiron, hardwood, ice, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. Today's guest is the assistant managing editor of the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Bill Bradley. I thought this would be an interesting spot for a few reasons. One is the obvious, the Vegas Golden Knights, historic march to the Stanley Cup final in their first season of existence. I get that people listening may think, Jay Reels, no one cares about hockey. No one cares about this team outside of Nevada, especially back here on the East Coast. But as much as you may not care or want to ignore, uh, this is a developing story that is unprecedented. I mean, a team in its first year of existence going to a championship, Stanley Cup final, whatever it may be, it's unheard of. Even if you don't know a hockey puck from a paperweight, this is a story that it's unfolding right before our eyes, and it is truly miraculous no matter how you cut it. And it's interesting to get a few of Bill's takes on this because what gets lost in all this, thinking back to that horrific tragedy there in Las Vegas on the Strip with that shooter, that was the pretty much the glue to set the stage for what was to come for this team. And it's interesting, when you look at other teams in recent vintage, whether it was the Astros last year after Hurricane Harvey, going ahead and winning a world championship. There was a couple of the examples that Bill brought up, which were fascinating when you think about it. So just from that standpoint, knowing that this team, first year, new franchise, new building, et cetera, and in Las Vegas of all places, certainly uh, some very interesting takes from Bill uh, as far as not just the players, but also the community just rallying around this team. And I'm sure that you'll find that uh, just fascinating to listen to. Number two, we'll get some insight from one of our local teams here in New York on what's going down on the farm for the Mets AAA affiliate, the Las Vegas 51s, what's going on with Dom Smith, Gavin Cicchini, uh, anyone else that uh, isn't on the radar but is making a push to play at the big league level. We'll find out a little bit about that. And third, although it's a bit early, but some thoughts on the Raiders' move to Las Vegas, which could take place as early as next year, but in all likelihood will commence in 2020. Later on the pod, you'll hear my take on the NBA Conference Finals to date, an early preview of the Stanley Cup Finals, plus the Mets, Yankees, and the stage is set for a potential Triple Crown winner in over two weeks. But first, here's my conversation with Bill Bradley, Assistant Managing Editor of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Uh, so yeah, so let's get started. Again, Bill, uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me a few minutes of your time to uh, discuss everything that's going on, especially with the uh, Golden Knights. And uh, for starters, before we even get into this euphoric crazy playoff run in this whole season uh to put into perspective how about the expectations of this team starting off obviously it's a new franchise inaugural season uh kind of wondering what the temperature was for this team going into this 2017-18 season was it more of a was it a team that was based or built for the playoffs or did you think it was a team was going to struggle considering they were an expansion team well, let's look at it this way. Every single one of our riders, we had five or six riders do predictions in our previous section, 
and every the most that any writer gave them was 29 wins. The fewest was I'd say 19, but none of them said they would they would have 109 points. That's for sure. The fact is, it's it has only it is not just a, a surpassed expectations. It's galvanized the city. Uh, even even when they were talking about uh, uh, what what they would do, uh, even Bill Foley was saying, "Yes, I'd like to be just competitive every night. I I don't want to I don't want to lose by six goals every night." Um, George McPhee it was pretty much speculated that he was drafting this team in order to just get pieces to build the team with. You know, get Mark Andre Fleury, see how as good he's doing at, at at the trade deadline, and get some big pieces for him for a team that might need a goaltender down the road or James Neal, or William Carlson. They make them uh, see how good they do for the first half, especially James Neal and or, and, or David Perrone, and then trade them off to try and get more draft picks and or uh, some younger people. Now, that has all been thrown out the window. About Jan- Right after the All-Star break, they decided, we're going to make the playoffs. <laughs> we're, we're leading the uh, Pacific Conference, or the Western Conference. We have a heck of a shot of making a playoffs that's not going far. So they were all in at the trading deadline. So to say that anybody, if anybody who had any expectations that they would be this good this quickly is out of their mind because no team has ever done this before. Nobody could predicted that. Even hockey experts like Barry Melrose, uh, they, they showed t- uh, footage of Matt right after the expansion draft. They, and you talked about, well, don't get, don't get tied to any, any James Neal or David Perone sweaters. These guys are here just for a short term to, uh, to get more players. So. It's uh, it's been improbable from the very start, and and it's amazing too because now with McPhee at the uh, helm here, the GM, and as we spoke at the uh, just before we started this interview with the Capitals now leading three nothing against the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, and it looks like it's going to be a Caps Golden Knight uh, Stanley Cup final. He was a former GM at Washington, so I can imagine what the sentiment must be on his end, knowing that he's going to go up against his you know his former boss, former team, but. Uh, Put that aside, what was the Bulldog mentality? Because as he was a player, of course, a lot of Ranger fans know when he played back in the 80s, he was just you know a short guy, 5'9", and was just really tough on the ice. Uh, did he have to have that same mentality, you think? Like you mentioned, back in January, that was the time for them to you know make that next step. Do you feel like he's brought that over since day one, or was that something that you said going back to January was pretty much the turning point in the season? Uh, I think I think they started to realize. Well, let me give you background here on on what the entire organization did. Um, uh, October one, a horrific ex, a horrific uh, attack happened in our city. Of course, a, uh, a shooter took out fifty eight people, uh, injured seven hundred more. The fact is that something the city will never may never get over, but but needed something to heal with. Immediately, the team players they went out into the community, signed autographs, helped people. Visited with first responders, gave out food at different uh, different spots, greeted people at blood banks. They did a lot for the city. Then they went off their first road trip. They won the, they won their very first game at Dallas. Then the next night they won at Phoenix. Both one goal games. Then they came home for their first home game, and that's when they really pulled the city together. They helped the city heal in many many ways. The very first time they uh, they they had a home game. They projected the, the names of the 58 victims on the ice. Mm. They brought out first responders. Uh, uh, Derek England, who uh, who was a Las Vegas made a Las Vegas resident, excuse me, who had just been pulled over from the uh, acquired in the expansion draft from the Calgary Flames. He had a very impassioned speech that uh, 
for the fans and told everybody he was they were they were going to play, play this season for the fans and for the first responders and for the people who uh, who suffered through all this. Well, that resonated very quickly with the fans. So, but in terms of George McPhee, uh, I think he realized slowly as this season went on, he had to take this team more, keep this team together. He had to. It wasn't something that, that clicked overnight. It was just something. Wow, we're still in it. Even when they went through a stretch where they had they they had, they were down to their fifth goaltender because of injuries. Even then, I'm sure he was thinking, well, this ain't going to last. None of us were thinking this is going to last. So I'm sure when the when they were in the first place in the in the Western Conference at the All Star break, that's when it, I, I believe that's when it finally came to pass. But he'd been he'd been coming to the realization that uh, that he had to keep this team together slowly but surely. It wasn't just one moment. And that's amazing. I mean, to think with everything that happened in that city prior to the start of the season, as you mentioned, and then you know, I, I was thinking, what was the the moment or if there was a game throughout the season that was symbolic for this uh, particular franchise that had the run that it's had. And I would think, like you mentioned, you know, just the horrific incident there on the strip and uh, that pretty much set the tone for the season, somewhat similar to last year in Houston with Hurricane Harvey and how that carried the Astros, you know, over to a uh, world championship. And uh, pretty much the same, it almost seems like it's uh, the it's same kind of sentiment. Similar. In fact, we have, a, we have a story in tomorrow's paper about, uh, or in, in Thursday's paper, about, uh, in fact, it should be on the website right now by Ted hmm. Graney, our lead columnist. He wrote about how tragedy and triumph go on, go hand in hand in a lot of these situations, and how t- sports teams help people heal. Well, he, he pointed out the Boston Red Sox after the uh, after the bombings at Boston Marathon. Right. He pointed out uh, Houston after the floods there. He pointed out the uh, uh, the New Orleans Saints a couple of, when they came back after uh, after Katrina. Uh, so there's there's lots of examples. But this is the latest example because not only this is kind of an extreme example. Not only are they an expansion team that was not supposed to win at all. I mean, they were supposed to be broken up by now. They're right. a team that that really has helped this city heal in many many ways. Amazing. And then uh, then of course the coach who kind of gets lost in all this because of the stories yes. that you mentioned. A lot of the storylines that you mentioned. Gerard Gallant, who's you know a former Red Wing. I remember his days when he played. You know, in the '80s, with the the famous line with Steve Eisman and Bob Probert, and uh, he was what a tough guy in that line? No, he was absolutely. So I'm sure he's pretty much the, you know, not only of course being just the the big influence as a coach, but it's kind of symbolic with the way the GM is, the way the city, even Derek England, like you mentioned, a Las Vegas resident, how they've all these, you know, just all these personalities have come together. What kind of uh, role has the coach played besides obviously? You know, making sure that the players are doing what they're supposed to do on the ice. What about off the ice? What? How big of an influence has he been? Very, very steady. He's been come known as a players' coach. You got to remember with with uh, Gerard Gallant, he uh, he was cast off, fired at midseason last last season by uh, by the Florida Panthers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact is, he was they were he was so cast off, they had him just get his own cab to the airport when he when they wouldn't even let him get him back on the plane. Wow. So the fact is. Gerard Gallant has been a very steadying force for this team. He's very even keel. He brings the same message every game. The practices are very player-oriented practices, and but he also brings. He's not a tough. He doesn't run the run the team with an iron fist, but he also runs it with a uh, with the knowledge of what his team can do, and plays to those strengths. The interesting thing about about that too is that Gerard is 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 came over. Not only not only him, but but they they brought over some other players from Florida, 
the fact is, I we I think it was the Florida Times or the uh, Florida Sun Sentinel, South Florida Sun Sentinel, right. just wrote a column about uh, how that franchise should be, take the credit for, <laughs> in many ways, for making this team because they allowed they allowed uh, Marshall Jonathan Marshall to, to to leave. Mm-hmm. They allowed a couple other players to leave, and their analytics coach is part of uh, Gerard Gallant's staff. Oh, amazing! As far as Gallant goes, he is he has been a huge part of this team. He didn't even show really emotion on the bench until they clinched. Wow, amazing! And they're uh, yeah. So, you know, another interest. You mentioned the top, the biggest game of the season. Uh-huh. The biggest game of the season, as far as regular season goes, was the in which they clinched the uh, the Pacific Division against the San Jose Sharks at home, mm-hmm. and it was kind of it was kind of fitting. They were tied uh, going into like with about four or five minutes to go, and uh, William Carlson got a got a puck on a breakaway and Carlson's been their leading goal scorer all year and so he gets he gets a puck at at a breakaway on on Martin Jones does a little deep job on him and then scores through his legs through his own legs and goes goes top shelf on Jones Mm. it's just typical of the season here's here's him throwing a little a little flash at the uh, at the opponent but it turned out that was the goal that that clinched the entire Pacific Division wow interesting now, when you look at the captains on this team, I know there are four alternate captains. and yes, there's co- no real captain. Right. So, and, of course, those four would be uh, Derek Englund, uh, James Neal, uh, David Perrin, and uh, also Lucas Visa. Now, out of the four, who is the guy that's actually the leader of this team, or we would say like the heart and soul of this uh, Golden Knights franchise? Well, I would have to say England because he's, he's a veteran. He, is, uh, he seems he's just very durable. He's a uh, he's a defenseman who knows what his team can do, and he's having. And that's the interesting thing about Derek England as well. Obviously, I talked earlier about the fact that he's a uh, he's a he's a Las Vegas resident, has been for about about ten years. When he played, going back to where he played for the Las Vegas Wranglers of the ECHL, but he's been a really steadying force. He's been there almost every game. He hasn't been injured that much, whereas James Neal's had a couple injuries. And it's just amazing that he here it is. I believe he, he's in his early 30s, but he's having a career year. No, and that's the one thing you know. Just uh, as you said a couple of times already, how much he's been in just a huge influence. And I pretty much had a feeling that was going to be the answer, considering you know how the season started and obviously him standing up and making the uh, passionate speech. So uh, obviously England is the is the guy at the helm there that everybody rallies around. You know, it's interesting. Also, a lot of there's been a lot of talk, a lot of buzz about how the. Uh, uh, how are, are GMs kicking themselves or letting this team happen? Are are they uh, is 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 this the league's fault for doing it? Well, you know, you can say the league made the expansion draft a lot easier, to, or they loose. Somebody said loosen up the rules. Well, the rules have been different every expansion draft. Mm-hmm. No one is no expansion draft has really been the same. There's been tweaks here or there. This one, yeah, you can you can add either ten uh Ten skaters, or uh, or ten nine skaters, and one goalie, or two goalies and uh, and eight skaters. So the the rules were a little loose, but uh, the the fact is, you still had to pick some really good players who are on the third or fourth line. George McPhee was very brilliant in the sense that half the team he drafted, he also worked deals with other teams to get extra players. A good example is um, Alex Tuck. They got him as a throw-in in order by for taking. Uh, uh, Eric Halla from the Minnesota Wild. So it's not just um, not just being shrewd in drafting; it's shrewd in, in making deals along the way. Well, 
and and for instance, with when they got a Mark Andre Fleury, they not only got Fleury, but they got a they got Pittsburgh to, to, to give them a second round draft pick too. So a lot of the buzz saying, okay, the league set this up, they made it easy for them. Well, nobody. First of all, you're, get, you're still drafting second or third liners, except for say Fleury, and he was injured for a, for a good part of the season. Then the fact is, you had if you're going to say the league, the the other teams uh, rolled over for him. You're going to tell me that that the Jets, the Sharks, the Kings didn't want to win a uh, uh, Stanley Cup just as bad? Wouldn't are, are just a shot? They're they're sitting on the sidelines doing an expansion team? No, there's nobody rolled over. This was a bunch of guys having a career year for all of them, and a GM that is uh, that was was very very shrewd in how he built this team, and a uh, and a coach who was very even keel about trying to win. And an owner who let them, who let the those people do their jobs. No, it's fantastic because you know usually the owner, especially in this day and age, you know you have the quote unquote the Jerry Jones type owner who just wants to be you know on camera or in the luxury box or or near the bench. And it's great how he, you know he's pretty much been off to the side and just like you said, just let the team play, let you know McPhee and the front office do what they need to do. Obviously, let Gallant coach, and here they are, just four wins away from winning a Stanley Cup. And it's interesting how you mentioned about Mark Andre Fleury. Here's a guy that has been on three Stanley Cup winners. The last two, which he really wasn't a part of due to Matt Murray being the goaltending, you know, being the the force behind, uh, between the pipes for the Penguins and winning those two Cups. Now, for this, this has to be sweet for him because I'm sure a lot of people thought that he was, I don't want to say done, but pretty much over the hill. A lot of people did think he was dead. Oh. A lot of people did think he was done. Absolutely. So this has to be just super sweet for him, knowing that he's made it to a Cup final, he's carried this team, this city on his back. I mean, what do you think about Fleury and what he's done here? Well, first of all, it's amazing because, yes, he was he was benched by uh, by by the co- by by Pittsburgh and they in order Matt Murray for two straight years and during the playoffs, and when you consider that uh, that Matt Murray was uh, that when he got benched the second time when he got benched last year during the playoffs, he said that he publicly said that's it for me I want out of here expose me in the expansion draft, mm-hmm. so Pittsburgh said okay we'll expose you in the expansion draft. Well, this guy has played his he played his butt off. He is playing at the, his best his best season in years. In fact, he's having his best playoff. He's having a playoff like he's five years younger. Right. This is not. This is a a, a Mark Andre Fleury in the playoffs. He already has five. I believe no, it's four shutouts in the playoffs. He didn't have any against the uh, against the Jets, but he had two apiece in the uh, in the first two rounds. He is he's having uh, like I said a, a year where he's five years younger. And when you consider who they're playing now, if you're the if you're the Capitals, and you're thinking, okay, we finally made it past the Penguins, we always get knocked out by the Penguins. We finally made it past them. We made it to the finals. Oh, great! We got to play Flurry, who's knocked us out for years and years when he was with Pittsburgh. Right, <laughs> which is going to be a very interesting storyline. Of course, we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, one other thing about this team, which. They've been on this unbelievable magic carpet ride, and it almost seems like from day one they haven't had any adversity. I mean, here they are. They get into the postseason. You know, they had the great regular season, of course, clinching the division, like you said. And even though they were down one zero, I, I would I would debate I would debate you on the adversity. During the earliest part of the season, uh-huh. they uh, before they went on a fifteen game uh, fifteen game unbeaten streak, they had they were down, they would go through five goalies. They had four goalies injured, and they had to go down to their to a. Uh, to a goalie who was in the ECHL. Mm. All right, so look at that. So you had an emergency goalie from the from the from the juniors. 
right? And then it's funny. Look at that. Five goalies, and then they proceeded to go on a 15-game unbeaten streak. Uh, but where I'm going at here is that considering this postseason, they've pretty much, I don't want to say they've had a cakewalk, but it's it's been a breeze. Uh, they were down 1-0 against Winnipeg. That's pretty much the only pressure that they faced, but it was only after game one, and obviously they win the next four. So right. now, what do you think about this team going up against, they're going to go up against a hot capital team. Uh, of course, the big storyline there is going to be Alexander Ovechkin finally making it to a cup final. Uh, you kind of wonder, let's say if it's, you know, game four, they're down 2-1, and here it is midway through the second period, and they're down 3-1 in the game. How do you think this team would bounce back from that type of pressure, knowing that A, it's a cup final, B, I know a lot of people could say, hey, we're not supposed to be here considering we're an expansion team, but if you've gotten this far and you've done so well in this postseason, you kind of wonder if there's going to be a little bit of pressure on that team in that spot. What do you think about that? Well, there's a, there's going to be threat pressure, no question. However, a couple things. We, uh, we've done a chart every round. Every team they've played, they've had almost as many playoff games per man as the other team has had. Mm. So you can say they're an expansion team, but these are a bunch of third and fourth liners from other teams who've played in the playoffs. So it's not like the uh, the playoff pressure has dumped in there. And when you consider there's somebody like, like uh, uh, well, William Carlson hasn't been that many in that many playoffs, but when you consider James Neal has been at the finals himself last year, when you consider Mark andre Fleury's has, has won a final by himself, and has been on the bench for a couple. Um, I and and when you look at the, this team's history, they have a habit of being. They've been down a lot in many times, and going into the third period, and come back, scored a couple goals, and taken the lead and won. I've I've actually I've been in the have been in the arena when I've said, okay, here we go again. They're down by a couple goals. They're uh, they're making a big charge in the final period, and suddenly they're they're either playing overtime or a shutout or shootout, excuse me, and suddenly they win the game. So I, uh, I'm, I, I don't root for this team, but I'm just amazed at times that uh, they are able to pull this stuff out, and they keep doing it over and over again. So if they're down 3-1 in the middle of the second period against, let's say, at home, uh, on the road at game, uh, uh, in game four, I'm not counting them out. Uh, no, listen, I mean, they've uh, they fought all year, so you certainly can't, uh, no matter what the series may be. Of course, if you get deeper to a series, you would have to wonder, wow, you know, this team, like you said, just been on a just historic run here that you kind of wonder how they would respond in a moment like that. Well, obviously, it looks like it's going to be the Capitals against the uh, Golden Knights. So a uh, quick prediction, if you can. Uh, what do you think? Do you think this is going to be a long series or just the way the Golden Knights have played? Do you think they're going to dispose this team? I'm not going to say a sweep, but let's say maybe in five tidy games. What do you think? I think uh, I look at a couple factors here. The Golden Knights are six and one at home during the playoffs, which is the best of any team in the in the playoffs. Um, the, uh, the the Capitals are, are can't uh, love winning on the road, so mm-hmm. I think that's going to be tell the tale. What happens What happens at at T-Mobile Arena? That said, I think it'll be over in six. I think the uh, I think the Golden Knights will win in six. Now listen, that's uh... a. Oh, go ahead. And this is a person who this is a person I thought they were, I, I thought they would beat the Sharks in six. I thought they would lose to the Jets in six. Well, I'm tired of picking against this team, <laughs> and uh, I think they'll win in six. Right. No, listen, and I'm sure there's a lot of people going to be rooting for them. It's it's going to be a fascinating series because of all the storylines, and I'm sure Gary Bettman and company are ecstatic because you know, obviously they would have taken the high road if uh, Tampa would have made it there to the uh, final, and it wouldn't have been as sexy, but knowing that you have the big star and the, the guy who's finally made it to the Holy Grail and see if he could – of course, uh, hoist a cup over his shoulders. And then, of course, you have this team in its first year of existence making this historic run. I mean, you can't get any better storylines than that. And then you want to throw in Flurry, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, j- just remarkable from, uh, you know, from start to finish. 
It is. It's going to be really fun. It really will be. No, and we'll certainly be looking forward to it. A few other things before I let you go, Bill. Uh, just to switch uh, gears to talk baseball. Obviously, here in New York, you know, the Mets and their farm system uh, being out there in uh, your neck of the woods. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about some of the players? The first person I'm going to throw is Dominic Smith. I mean, here's a guy who had some major league experience last year. Uh, a lot of people thought that uh, after him slimming down and maybe would make the team, but when they signed Adrian Gonzalez to play first base, that pretty much uh, went by the wayside. Uh, how's his attitude been this year compared to last year? And do you think he's that much closer to making a major league roster or making the Mets considering that Gonzalez, you know, 36 years old, and it could be a chance that uh, sometime in the next couple of months he may be off the team. Well, here's something new for you. Uh, they've just started using him and the, putting him in the outfield, trying him out in the outfield. Because mm. they, uh, obviously, the Mets are not going to walk away from uh, Adrian Gonzalez unless they trade him or something uh, as their first baseman. And I think the organization has come to that conclusion, and so is, so is uh, Dominic Smith. Because beginning last, early beginning this week, he has started working in the outfield. We'll see how he does. I think it's going to take about a week. Our beat writer's been paying attention to him. Um, she says he's looked pretty good so far, but uh, it, it'll remain to be seen. She wants to see what what he looks like for a week. But that's that's the that's his road back to the majors. He ain't going to make it uh, as a first baseman, at least this season. Well, it'll be interesting because I know he's uh, trimmed down quite a bit, and I'm sure he's you know keeping the weight off. And obviously, if he wants to make it to the major leagues, he has to keep that weight off. So hopefully, the uh, outfield experiment works for him and you know in his favor. Now, another guy that well, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of buzz last year with both him and uh, and Ahmed Rosario here. Right, obviously the two top prospects in the Mets organization. A lot of people thought they were going to make the make the team from there on after they were called up and and uh, be uh, be mainstays. Well. We were kind of surprised when we saw, uh, um, obviously, Ahmed was going to make it, and he still he's, he's the regular shortstop now. And uh, But Dominic, we were very surprised that they they, tra- they signed uh, Adrian Gonzalez. So. Uh, so was I, but that's typical Mets and Sandy Alderson. You know, they go shopping in the, uh, you know, in the clearance bin, so when they pick up guys like that or Joey Batista that they did the other day, I mean, it's uh, just typical Sandy. Uh, the other play I want to bring up is uh, Gavin Cicchini. Now, uh, here's a guy, another yeah. number one pick. Uh, you know, when you look at the glut of young talent that's in Major League Baseball, especially the infield position, you know, whether it's Gleyber Torres or Ozzy Albies, and not that I'm trying to compare Caccini to those guys, but, <clears throat> excuse me, and not to put him in that category by any stretch, but uh, have you seen any progress uh, that you could... Uh, you know, I hate, to, I hate to say it, but not really. I, I, he's been around here for a few years now, right? and I don't see him making uh, making any strides to move, out, to move up. I think he'll get a cup of coffee here or there, but I don't see him sticking. I think... Uh, He's one of those players. He's had, had a lot of promise, a lot of talk about him. But, you know, he's been around here as long as I've been here three years, and I believe he's been here at least two. And I don't see any 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 sign that he's going to move on up. And he's just a good player, but not a good enough player to make to, to stick in the majors. What do you think his issue is? Is it defense, offense, not uh, being able to, you know, not disciplined in the strike zone when it comes to, you know, being at the plate? What do you think is his biggest problem? I think, I think, his, I think he has some plate issues. But I think the other thing is confidence. The organization having confidence in him, because they keep putting putting land, putting uh, roadblocks in him on his way up. Mm. So I think he's he's a good player. But I just uh, I just think even the organization is convinced he's not going to be the one that where we need to call up to fill the infield positions. Interesting. And is there anybody that's not on the radar here in New York that you could kind of look down there? Uh, I understand maybe you know Corey Oswald is a guy is a pitcher. 
that uh, there would have been a lot of talk about him coming up here. But is there, whether it's him or is there anybody else down there that you see that we don't see every day that you think has a shot to make it to, to flushing and playing in the Mets? Well, they just had a, called up a pitcher from Binghamton this week. He had his first AAA start. He looked really good last night or two nights ago. Uh, Andrew Church. Hmm. And uh, I would say keep an eye on him. They, they, they pitched him in an interesting situation. He didn't start, actually. He pitched uh, the last five innings. So he pitched a good, solid five innings. And I think they wanted to be a starter. And I think he has a shot to be the next, uh, possibly the next big starter coming out of here. Oh, well, that'd be good because, uh, as you know, the Mets are a pitching rich organization. And uh, with the way things are going now, and they even lost the game tonight to the Marlins where uh, Jacob DeGrom, you know, had eight scoreless, uh, you know, struck out eight. I believe he pitched uh, seven innings, and they still ended up losing to the Marlins two to one. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Any <laughs> any new pitching coming up the pike would certainly be uh, a help, that's for sure. And uh, one and last, I know Pilecki is down here, uh, uh-huh. on re- or at least coming down here soon on rehab. But uh, you know, it's it's not like uh, not like uh, he it was he was a few seasons ago when he was uh, thought to be a hot prospect. He's now just filling a hole, so right? I tell you, that's uh, just typical Mets these days. But uh, one last thing for me, Bill. Is and I understand this may be a little bit early, but uh, the Raiders, uh, any early buzz? Uh, you know, with the, the whole relocation, I understand it could be possible that maybe even of, as early as 2019. A lot, oh, absolutely. They, uh, I would say they're still going to, I think they're going to stick in Oakland for 2019. Okay, it's already being built, it's already uh, there's, there's lots and lots of cranes across the freeway from, uh, from Mandalay Bay. Um, the, uh, the uh, a lot of people are looking forward to Gruden being there, being here as coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, we already have a beat writer. We hired a beat writer last year. We've been covering the team more uh, more aggressively than the Bay Area te- uh, papers have. Wow, so we're, we're we're the I'd say we're already the uh, the number one source of Raiders news. Um, but I think uh, there's already so much buzz about the Raiders coming here. The stadium is already sold out for suites. So that happened. We. we uh, we broke that today. Wow! And uh, and uh, there's also I think they're almost well sold out of club seats too. So some people are upset, locals, that they're not getting uh, either uh, the club seats or some of the seats they wanted. And the fact is, I believe the uh, the season ticket holders from Oakland got first dibs because they they're trying to take care of them. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, for the most part, I think people are going to be really really excited. Yes, they're excited about the Knights. But let's face it, as great as this this run is, it's the National Hockey League. And when an NFL team comes in, they're going to take over this, this city like no other could. Oh, absolutely. And now that I think about it, if I would have told you when you first started there at the uh, Review Journal that uh, in three years, or I guess maybe two years, depending on you know when you started, that the uh, NHL would actually have a team and will go to a cup final, and then two years after that, you're going to have a franchise in the Oakland Raiders move to Las Vegas – I'm sure you probably would have told people that uh, they must, you know, need their heads examined uh, and to think. I would say check your meds. And then, <laughs> and then the fact is, uh, we got we also gained a, a minor league soccer team, which is not bad. I mean, it's it's a, like a CUSL team. Right. We've gained um, a WNBA team, which there's a reason why we have a WNBA team. I believe is because MGM Corporation, which owns the team, is trying to prove to the NBA so that we please can we please have an NBA team. Mm. So. That's a path. That's a path to a uh, to a bigger thing. And uh, then the minor league baseball team, the fifty ones we were talking about, right. just got a brand new ballpark in suburban Summerlin. Oh, interesting. And you know what? Now that I think about it, one last thing, uh, Bill. So we hear about Vegas, and of course the air there, how the ball just flies out of that ballpark. And obviously, you know those summers, I'm sure it gets very hot, dry heat. 
But at the same time, is that, that really the case out there? I mean, that's all we hear back east about, oh, you know, numbers could be skewed depending on, you know, the type of hit, you know, hitter you are. Uh, let's say Dominic Smith. I know he had a you know, ton of home runs last year and obviously a high batting average. Uh, is there any truth to that, to where the balls just I fly think, out of there? I think, I think it's, a little, it's a little that way, but not as, not as exaggerated as, say, oh, uh, Colorado Springs or some of the other uh, higher elevation areas. Yes, we're 2,000 feet elevation here, mm-hmm. but it's not as, uh, not as, as exaggerated as, as there's still some good pitching performances here. But now the interesting thing is this, uh, because of the mountain ranges here, Summerlin is, is butts up against the, the, mountain ra- the western mountain range, and when that new ballpark is built there, it's actually going to be 10 to 15 degrees cooler, cooler at night than it is in Las Vegas proper. So for fans, it's going to be better. It'll be interesting to see what it does for, for the ballplayers in terms of their stats. Wow, interesting stuff. Well, listen, Bill, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We'll certainly be watching on Monday where the Stanley Cup final will commence on Memorial Day evening. I'm sure all eyes will be watching on that as that will pretty much be the only sporting event that's going on. You know, minus baseball, but major sporting event going on. So... Center stage will uh, be set there in Las Vegas there for game one. Looking forward to it. Glad you could have me. All right. Thanks again to Bill Bradley of the Las Vegas Review Journal for spending some time with me on the program. As you've heard, that city is pumped and ready to celebrate a championship. But uh, first things first, they need to get the next four out of seven in order to party down the strip in its very first season in the NHL. I I can't stress it enough. When When you really think about it, there are long-suffering fans in every sport. You know, whether it's the Bills, after the run in the early 90s with four straight Super Bowls and not coming up victorious. Uh, please, all you have to do is look right here in the backyard in this town with the Jets and the Mets to know what it's like not to taste champagne after winning a title. And I understand the Mets 86, but still, that is 32 years ago. But how about the fans in hockey hotbeds like Toronto and Montreal? I mean, especially Toronto. Toronto hasn't sniffed or even played in the Stanley Cup in over 50 years. 5-0. That's right, 5-0. And then the Canadians, who are the Yankees of hockey, winning 24 titles, the last time they'd been to a Stanley Cup and won was 25 years ago. 1993 against Gretzky and the LA Kings. So here it is, you have this team, first year, in its existence, and what happens? They go to a Stanley Cup final. I understand they have to seal the deal. You don't come this far to think that you know you can't win or you're not going to win. And I understand it's going to be the the... The critic that's going to say, or maybe not even the critic, they're going to have the person that's going to say, well, hey, they weren't supposed to be here. Uh, it's been a great run. No, you've gone this far. you got to knock it down. you got to hammer the nail to make sure to seal this deal and try to win a championship. Can it happen? That's why we watch sports. And it's interesting to think that even in its first go-round here in Las Vegas, and a lot of people back east or maybe around the country – don't even care. They look at Las Vegas. Ah, you know, this is their first year. Who cares about Vegas? You know, I just want to go out there to party. Or, you know, nobody cares about hockey. Well, imagine this. Imagine a team in Major League Baseball. And I can equate it to Major League Baseball because we know New York's a baseball town. Going to the World Series in his first year. I mean, please. That is just... People would think that you're off your rocker. And for this team to do that... And I understand a lot of people have been saying that, oh, it's been rigged. You know, how has this team in its first year gone to a Stanley Cup? And as you know, Bill just said, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, this was made for Vegas to go ahead and win a Stanley Cup. All right, please, people. I mean, that's why they play the games. You know, you put this team together. You don't know what you have. Right, you have a bunch of cast-offs from all these teams. I understand a lot of them 
pretty much think that, hey, this is just a pit stop for me to go on to somewhere else. But also, these are professionals. And a lot of these guys think that, you know what, we got something to prove here. You know, we're cast-offs of these other teams for a reason. And, I mean, it's been a magic carpet ride. I mean, who would have ever thought that they would have gotten this far in its first year? But still, that is a story that I don't want to say is flying under the radar because people know that this team is obviously in its maiden voyage in the NHL. But I can't emphasize it enough, and that's why I thought it was interesting to have a guy like Bill Lon just to kind of discuss just the fabric and what's going on with this organization, what's going on with this franchise, and especially in light of what happened prior to the start of the year, as he eloquently put it. And to me, it's just a fascinating story. And not only that, but the NHL and Gary Bettman, I know that their chicken cordon bleu with the au gratin potatoes and their uh, Sauvignon Blanc certainly went down a lot smoother last night when the Washington Capitals won 4 nothing, and just a miraculous and unbelievable job by then. And I say miraculous because if you've heard the podcast over the last few weeks, this is an organization in the Washington Capitals I'm talking about. This is an organization that has had heartache, heartbreak, just that you can't even quantify. You know, losing to the Penguins in Game 7s, losing to the Rangers all those years in Game 7s. You know, being one seeds and getting knocked out before a conference final. And not only that, being knocked out in the first round against an eight seed back in 2010 against the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, this team has just been through the ringer and back. And, you know, it was something about them beating Pittsburgh in six games. They didn't push that to a seventh game. And as it was here, winning the first two games in Tampa, knowing that they didn't have to go back to Tampa. They could have just cruised and won their two games at home and would have waited for... Las Vegas there for the Stanley Cup final. But no, they took the hard route. Losing the middle three games and then winning the game six at home. And then obviously icing the conference final last night, 4 nothing down in Tampa. Which sets the stage for a, a very fascinating Stanley Cup. I know we talked about it a little bit with Bill. I guess we could just get right to it when it comes to making a prediction, but... A lot of people are going to think that this is Alexander Ovechkin's time. That 13 years in the league, with everything that he's gone through, with all this playoff heartache and not being able to get over the hump or just get past that conference semifinal hump, and now here he is. He's finally made it. And he had a very, you know, listen, he was instrumental in winning not only just this series, but last night putting his fingerprints on the game where they knew they had to have. It was the biggest game of his career by far. And they succeeded. Now, you have a bunch of storylines, which I'm sure, as I mentioned before, Gary Bettman and company are loving right now. Because if he had Tampa there, and granted that Tampa was in the Stanley Cup final back in 2015, but it doesn't bring the same appeal or the same sexiness, as I'll call it, you know, for America to say, hey, you know, let me take a look at this uh, series and see, uh, you know, what it's all about. I understand Vegas, their story speaks for themselves. They also have the goaltender who has a championship pedigree in Marc-Andre Fleury. But to me, as much as it's going to be about the team in Las Vegas and everything that they've had to deal with uh, throughout this whole season, a lot of it is going to be directed towards the Capitals, finally getting to a Stanley Cup final, having the great player, the, let's face it, he's a lock Hall of Famer. He's one of the faces of this league for the last 13 years. I understand that he's not an American or... Canadian, 
But still, the guy's been dominant throughout his whole career, and this is his final step. This is what everybody looks for in a career, not only how dominant you were, but did you win a championship? Because as we all know, we're all prisoners of the moment, not me. That's right, I said it. But a lot of people, let me rephrase that. A lot of people are prisoners of the moment. You know, they just look at the, as if hockey started or as if sports started, you know, three, four years ago. Ovechkin, as we all know, the dominant player now just needs to get that brass ring. And here it is. You have the Cinderella in Las Vegas, and you have the team that has been climbing up that ladder only to get knocked down every year. Well, guess what? They've made it to the top of the ladder. Now it's for them to plant their flag at the top to make sure they come out of this as champions. How I look at this series, I'm not going to get into X's and O's and, you know, listen, I haven't watched every minute of this postseason. But from following afar and looking at this in just one particular way, I think the Capitals, they certainly have what it takes. Obviously, they wouldn't be here if that's the case. And sometimes when you look at a team that has been knocked down over the years, that they finally get to this point that they know that they could not only just smell it, but they could taste it. But it's just something about that Vegas team, man. I mean, they haven't faced any adversity this year. I understand Bill, you know, he thought otherwise, especially when it came to the situation early in the season with five goalies. But that, to me, that was early in the regular season. You know, we didn't know what that team was about. We didn't know what that team was going to transform to. You know, it's not as if they, as he said, that after January, not to say that every game was easy, but it's certainly they didn't have their share of bad streaks. You know, it wasn't as if, oh, geez, this team is on the fringe of making the playoffs. Oh, are they going to make it? No, they pretty much were in cruise control the whole year. And this postseason, as I said before, they were down one love to Winnipeg, but it was just one game. You know, let me see this team down 2-1 in the series. Second period, they're down 3-1. Let me see what they made of them. Now, I think Vegas, I think that they are capable Because that team believes, and that team has certainly just been on, I mean, it's been a dream. It seems like it's a never-ending dream. And I'm sure that once the season ends, whether it ends in a series loss or whether it ends with them hoisting a Stanley Cup over their shoulders, you know, that that dream, they're never going to want that to end. You know, they want to just continue to be on that dream. And listen, they would certainly be the toast of sports if they were to be able to to come away with this as champions. So to me, the, the, the one storyline, and we could talk about matchups, and we could talk about the goaltenders, and we can talk, it's the team that's destined to finally be here after all these years in the Capitals, and the team of destiny after just one year playing in this league. I'm going to root for the Capitals for Ovechkin. And I have nothing against the Vegas Golden Knights. Nothing. I mean, how, what, what can you not like about them? They've been a riveting story all year. But I think when push comes to shove, and I think even if the Capitals were to win game one, I'm sure Vegas going to be like, oh, well, we got them right where we want them. But as you get deeper in the series, that's when I want to see the toughness. That's when I want to see the grit. And that's something that we haven't really seen. And it certainly certainly will go a long way if they were to show that if they are down in the series 2-1 or even 3-2, 
And here it is. It's, you know, second period and already down to nothing. You know, is this team going to panic? Is this team going to, you know, squeeze its sticks extra tight? Is the goaltender, Marc-Andre Fleury, is he going to be, you know, on edge? To me, that's going to be the fascinating storyline. But as much as I'm going to root for the Capitals, I, I'm going to pick Vegas. I'm going to pick them in six. I think Bill was right about that. And there's nothing against the Capitals and nothing, and nothing against what they've done. I mean, just getting here. And they know how hard it is to get here. And who knows? They may be the more desperate team. They may, they may be the team saying, you know what? We've been through all the rigors. We've been there. Sometimes sports isn't fair like that. Just because you've climbed up that mountain and you've gotten knocked down or, yes, you've won President's Trophies and you feel like, hey, this is going to be the team this year, whether it was in 2010, whether it was two years ago, or whatever it is, and you get knocked down that, hey, the sports gods, the hockey gods, here's your championship. They owe it to you. No, it doesn't work that way. Do I think the Capitals have a shot to win? Absolutely. I mean, they could easily win in six just as much as Vegas going in six. You know, I'd like to see a long series. It'd be nice to see a seven-game series. You know, it's nothing like a game seven, as we've all heard in sports. But Vegas, since the start of the year, and with everything that's gone on, and you can't, it's tough to quantify when a community, when a town rallies around a certain event. And I'm not trying to say that that's the guarantee for a team winning a championship. But as Bill pointed out in the interview, and just recently, all you have to do is just look at the Houston Astros with Hurricane Harvey. And I get it. It didn't happen for the Yankees in 2001 with 9-11. But it seems that more often than not, especially in recent years, that you've had these teams that have faced some sort of tragedy or some, some sort of adversity where they've rallied around that. And it's been just enough to propel them to win a title. And I think Vegas, they know what's at stake here. Not even just winning a championship, not even just winning it for the city, but just for history. I mean, we'll never see that again. And one thing before we get on to the next topic, you know, it was almost like the 18-0 and Patriots, and I can't stand the Patriots. But guess what? I can't stand the Giants either. And not to say that I was rooting heavily for the Patriots, but I wanted to see that perfect season. I wanted to see 19-0. and Obviously, I was only three years old when the Miami Dolphins were 17-0 and and had the only perfect season in NFL history. But imagine that. You're seeing a perfect season. You've witnessed that. To be able to witness a team win a championship in its first year, I don't think you're ever going to see that again. And that's not to say I have the pom-poms out for Las Vegas to win because, again, I'm rooting for the Capitals. I want them to win a cup. You know, obviously they've had a just too much heartache and heartbreak that, and with the with the great player, they deserve to win. I can't say they deserve to win because, obviously, it needs to be displayed on the ice, but that's why I'm rooting for them to win. And that's not to say, oh, Vegas will come back next year whatever. We don't know. Teams change. But I just think the specter of Everything that I just said about the Golden Knights and everything that's transpired this year, I just feel as if they're going to be Stanley Cup champions in 2018. All right, and a couple other things, hockey notes. One, I almost fell out of my chair when I heard about the shocking hire of Lou Lamarillo, who is now the president of hockey operations for the New York Islanders. I mean, when this news broke, I I couldn't believe it. I said, wait a minute, is this some sort of trick 
on the Islander fan? Is this some sort of prank? I, what, what's going on here? But since the Bill Torrey days, going back that far in the 80s, you know, the Islanders have just been inept. I mean, let's face it. And I've been an Islander fan my whole life. And all you need to know in a sentence is when Mike Milbury, who had nine lives as a GM back in the mid-90s into early 2000s, you know, drafting Roberto Luongo, the goaltender, as the number four pick overall back in 97, went ahead and then drafted Rick DiPietro number one just three years later. I mean, that's all you need to know about the Mike Milbury era, about the Islanders where they were as a franchise, and that was 20 years ago. I mean, since then, they've had some mild success. You know, Peter Laviolette came in in 2002, you know, took them to the playoffs those times where they got whacked in the first round to Toronto that one year in that physical series, and in Ottawa the following year. That was, those were the Alexei Yashin, Michael Pecka days, if you recall those. But now to have a guy like Lula Lamorello, and we all know, especially in this town, Devils, five Stanley Cups, four in that eight-year span between 95 and 2003. They lost in 2001 to Colorado, but they won three Cups in that span. Also took them back to another Cup in 2012 against the Kings. So to have that guy entrenched, knowing that there's going to be a new building down the road, a new practice facility, I get it that he's 75 years old and people are going to say, oh, he's too old, Jay Reels, come on, what's going on? No. If Jerry West is still an executive in the NBA for the Los Angeles Clippers, and I believe next week he's going to be 80. Jerry West, the logo. So if he's still around making decisions and still sharp as attack, why can't Lou Lamarell do this? So I just hope that they get it right this time, and I think they, they're in the right hands with Lamarello. You know, let's see what's going to happen with John Tavares. You know, just because Lamorello's in the mix doesn't automatically mean that, hey, you know, Tavares may look at it and say, you know, that's great. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm in the prime of my career. You know, 28 years old. And I think it's time for me to move on. And I don't know if this was a ploy just to get him here, to have Tavares stay here. If John Ledecky and Scott Malcolm are the guys that uh, certainly looked at Lou and said, wave that magic wand to see what you could do to keep John here, then that was smart on their part. But again, that's no guarantee whatsoever. So let's just see how that unfolds here in the weeks to come as uh, free agency and obviously the draft is coming up in a month and uh, about six weeks from now. And as for the Rangers, they're also making news as they hired a new coach. David Quinn, who is formerly the coach of Boston University, gets his first NHL head coaching job. He was an assistant in Colorado for a year back in 2012-13, so that's his only NHL experience, but certainly has a ton of experience on the college and Team USA level. Uh, let's see how that translates over to the pros. So David Quinn is now the new coach of the New York Rangers. As far as the NBA is concerned, Game 5 last night between the Celtics and Cavaliers, where the Celtics have taken a 3-2 lead in the best of seven, one game away from the NBA Finals, which would be their first NBA Final in eight years. 2010 was the last time, of course, when they lost that tough Game 7 out in Los Angeles. And it's pretty much been a home court series. You know, when the Celtics are playing at home, which they haven't lost, they're 10-0. and They've certainly played behind that crowd, and obviously the younger legs have prevailed, whereas the game's in Cleveland. And you knew game three, after three days off, that LeBron and company were just going to blitz them, and they certainly did to the tune of a 30-point victory. And same song was uh, played there in game number four where they 
got out to the big lead. The Celtics clawed back, but certainly didn't have enough. And then now you have a game six here coming on Friday. Uh, I think it's going to go seven games. Uh, you know, LeBron's not going to go out quietly in the night. Um, and again, game sevens, it's just literally a coin flip. You would think that the Celtics, with all the home court dominance that they've had in this postseason, that they will go ahead and prevail. That's why they play the games. You know, we got to wait and see what happens. I mean, if we all think that, oh, yeah, Cleveland's going to win game six and then Boston's going to come home and win game seven, if we could automatically say that, then oh, all right, then why bother? Let's just put the Celtics in an NBA final. There is a possibility that, hey, the Celtics can come out and win a game six. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, LeBron is as tired as he may be. He's still dominant. He's still LeBron James. And no matter how you slice it, although it would be nice for the Celtics to not have to play a game seven, not have to worry about coming back home, you know, with everything on the line, I think that the series will go seven. And I think the Celtics will prevail. I think the Celtics won a game seven at home. I know the crowd is going to be, and it's going to be a Sunday night, Memorial Day weekend. They're going to be fired up. And, you know, we'll just see what happens. I'm certainly looking forward to it. It's been an unbelievable ride to this point. And, again, one win away from going to an NBA Finals without Kyrie Irving, without Gordon Hayward, has just been a remarkable feat. And even to get to this point, because a lot of people thought that they were going to be, you know, dead and buried after playing Philadelphia, and especially the first round that they had against Miami. But here they are, again, just 48 minutes away from playing in another NBA Finals. And then... Game five tonight between Golden State and Houston. I understand this was an enormous game. And earlier we talked about with Las Vegas having that moment. You know, being down in the series, being down in the game. What kind of mental toughness? What kind of resolve? You know, how are they going to be able to battle through this? Well, the Rockets had that in game four. And guess what? They prevailed. And you got to give them all the credit in the world. And I've been... Public enemy number one bashing this team between Chris Paul, James Harden, and even the coach. And guess what? Paul and Harden, although their numbers were good at the end of the game, but they didn't really have that fourth quarter. You know, it's not as if you know Chris Paul had like a 14-point fourth quarter or James Harden had a stretch where, you know, he's hit four threes and propelled them to victory. It was a true uh, total team effort. Golden State only had 12 points in the fourth quarter. They had a double-digit lead in the fourth quarter, and it just squandered it. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with some poor coaching. Steve Kerr actually had all five starters play every minute of the third quarter, which to me just didn't make any sense. You know, you would think that if you had a double-digit lead or you were pretty much, I'm not going to say in cruise control, but if you figured that your team pretty much had the game in hand to the point where you could substitute, and although you didn't have Andre Iguodala, which was a huge loss, because of what he does on the perimeter defensively. And obviously, he's a glue guy. He's a guy that you want to have on your team, on any team, especially when you're uh, pursuing a championship. But with him out of the lineup and with the way they were playing, there was no need for them to play that whole quarter where by the time he got to the fourth quarter and Houston started chipping away, that the Warriors were just taking bad shots. I understand Curry was heroic, making some threes. And Curry was doing things that he normally does. And, you know, you haven't really seen a lot of. I mean, yes, he's had his moments in the postseason. I'm not trying to say that he hasn't. But in a sense, when you, you think of Curry having those hot streaks, you think about last year. You think about even the 73-9 and nine year. This year has been a little bit different. You know, obviously, he's missed part of the postseason with the injury. He's come back. He's had his moments here. And 
although he did have his moments there in the fourth quarter, but Durant pretty much didn't make any big shots. Klay Thompson, I understand he was trying to be a hero there. A lot of people thought that he probably should have called a timeout, and even though Steve Kerr was trying to call a timeout, but with the noise, and I guess the referees weren't looking in his direction. So you had Houston pull out a game that they absolutely had to have, and all the kudos goes to the coaching staff and the players for being able to dig deep and show that, as I like to say, testicular fortitude, not even just the mental fortitude, to pull out a game, and now they have to make it stick. They can't go home tonight and lay an egg or be in a close game. I would think they'd have to go back to that game two mentality where they would like to cruise and coast to get that confidence back because I feel as if if there's a game seven, let's say if Houston wins tonight in a close game and then Golden State blows them out on Saturday, game seven Monday night, as we've said time and time again throughout this podcast, it's going to be a toss-up. And a lot of people are going to probably pick Golden State to win. And we understand there's ebbs and flows. And, you know, we even talk about the Celtics and Cavs, how when Boston went to Cleveland up 2-0, you're thinking, oh, geez, you know, the way they've been playing, despite the fact that they haven't been successful on the road, the Celtics, that is, in the postseason, all they have to do is win one or two games like they did in Philadelphia. That didn't happen. So when they played game five last night, despite the fact that they've been perfect at home, I'm sure a lot of people thought, oh, LeBron's going to have that Superman moment that they're going to eke out a win and then go back to Cleveland up 3-2. Well, now it remains to be seen whether or not Houston's going to make this stick. You would think that now they have a lot of air under their wings and they're just going to try to put this game in the bag and then hopefully close it out in Golden State. But even though that one game, as impressive and as big as it was for this franchise, I still have to see it again. Because I think there's going to be one more game where they're going to have to show that toughness. They're going to have to show that fortitude. They're going to have to really dig deep in one of these next three games. All right, they did it once. That's great. But the great teams just don't do it once. They do it more than once. So that's what's going to be interesting to watch unfold. Maybe not necessarily tonight, but who knows? If Golden State, let's say, hey, they're up seven with five minutes to go, fourth quarter. What's going to happen there? And the game is in Houston. And that's why it was so impressive because they were able to do it on the road at Golden State to keep their season and their championship aspirations alive. Now, home cooking, let me see that same scenario. Can they pull it off? And not when they're up 3-2, because let's say if they're up 3-2 and they're at Golden State and they come out, have a game where they know that even if their back's up against the wall, they may say, yeah, we got a game seven at home. Now, if they're down 3-2 and they go to Golden State and they pull what they did in Game 4, then that's all you need to know. That's when you know a team is going to be either on its way to a championship or you know that if they don't win a championship this year, this team can be trusted in a big moment. And that was my problem with this rocket group as it is today. Whether it was the coach, Chris Paul, James Harden, they can't be trusted. And Enormous spots, not just big spots, enormous spots. And they certainly showed that on Tuesday night. And let's see if it happens again over the course of these next few days. And I know during the interview, I mentioned that Monday night is the Stanley Cup final and it coincides or doesn't coincide with anything. Well, yes, it would. Besides the baseball 
if Golden State and Houston goes to a Game 7, they're going to go head-to-head with the Stanley Cup Final, which everybody's going to be glued to the NBA, and rightfully so. Game 1 of a championship round, unless the diehard hockey fan's going to be there, which for all intents and purposes, they will. But if the series does go seven games, then NBC and the Stanley Cup Final will go head-to-head with the TNT game. But if not, if it does end at 6, there'll be the standalone game, and I'm sure a lot of people, even the casual fan, may turn it on and say, hey, what's this going on as you wind down your Memorial Day weekend as, believe it or not, the unofficial beginning of summer is right upon us. All right, a few quickies before we uh, sign off. Uh, I'm just going to be brief here with the Yankees and Mets. I'll start with the Mets just to get it over with. They lose two out of three to the Marlins. That's all you need to know. They, you know, they had a, Although they had a successful homestand, they were five and three. They could have been six and two. Uh, Jerry's Familia blows a game last night where Jacob DeGrom goes seven innings, strikes out eight, gives up four hits. And the Mets lose the back two of the three-game series against the Marlins, where now they have to go on the road for Milwaukee, which is not going to be easy because they're playing well. And they have four in Atlanta, which is a day-night doubleheader, a makeup game from earlier this year on Memorial Day, followed by the two games. And then they have the Cubs coming in for four. So they're going to go through a pretty rough stretch. They have Baltimore there after that, and then the Yankees come to town. So Mets, which would have been great to get that Last game yesterday, six and two on a home stand, and then it would have been twenty five and twenty on the, in the standings. But uh, be that as it may, that is not the case. So now they have to go on the road to two tough places, eight games in the next seven days. Listen, the Mets did a good job over the weekend. I know Arizona's been awful. It's almost and it's crazy to think that you know the Mets you know they can't win two out of three against the Marlins team, but they certainly. Were able to sweep an Arizona team, which again struggling. They barely were putting out a major league lineup, even with Paul Goldschmidt in the middle of that. But you know, we'll see with the Mets here. This is going to be a very interesting stretch coming up. Tough games, uh, not easy games by any stretch. You know, you lose Jake uh, over this weekend. I mean, you'll have Syndergaard pitch on Friday. But uh, those games that when Degrom and Syndergaard pitch, you must win. And Familia wasn't able to seal the deal there. So uh, we'll certainly keep our eyes on that as we head into a Memorial Day weekend. As far as the Yankees are concerned, guess what? Stop the presses. They lost a series. This is a team that's won eight straight series. They actually lose one. And funny enough, they win the first one. Oh, as a matter of fact, I take that back. They actually lost Monday. They won yesterday, uh, two days ago, and then they lost last night in a wild game. You know, they're actually up 10-5 in this game. And they end up losing 12-10. So they lose a series to the lowly Texas Rangers, which uh, showed a lot of offensive punch. I didn't watch the game. Obviously, I was wrapped up in the Celtics and also uh, having the, doing this interview with uh, Bill. And with the Yankees now, they come home after a day off today. They play the Angels over the weekend, followed by the Astros coming into town for Memorial Day week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. As we know, the Yankees are going to be fine. You know, I know to me, the story of this Yankee team right now, especially over the last few days, has been Gleyber Torres. And what he's done here in the six weeks that he's been here has been nothing short of remarkable. I mean, you might as well hand him the Rookie of the Year trophy. I understand people out in Anaheim may think uh, Shohei Otani will get some votes and will uh, likely be at the top of that. But the way Gleyber Torres is swinging, and it's interesting. We know the rumors, well, I don't want to say the rumors, but we know all the hype coming in of what this kid was going to be dating back to the trade with the role to Chapman and the Cubs back in 2016. We knew that this was going to be a guy that was going to be a shortstop, but now with Didi there, second baseman, 
You hear the comparisons of Robinson Cano. A lot of people think it's more Robbie Alomar. You know, he's cool, calm, collected. I, you know, just watching him just over the last few days, you just look at this kid and say, wow. I mean, it's he's just got it. He's one of those guys that you're going to look at over the next 10 years. You know, obviously the Ronald Acuna's of the world and the Ozzy Albies, you know, kids like that. You know, these are going to be the faces of the league for the next decade. And that brings me back to just a couple of things. One, when the teams like the Cubs with all their young talent, when they won a World Series, and of course we know who all the names are, the Chris Bryant's of the world and Javier Baez. You know, Rizzo was a little bit older but still young. We all know that you you need to have that young core position players in order to be successful. And I think the younger the better. It's interesting how these young players are maturing in all these sports. I mean, look at the Celtics. Jalen Brown's a second-year player, and Jason Tatum's a rookie, and those guys are playing right now as if they've been in the league four or five years. You know, Gleyber Torres, you look at this guy now, and you would think he's been in the major leagues for five years. Same with Acuna, same with Albies. Same with the guys before him, the Bryce Harpers, the Manny Machados. I mean, these are guys that, when they hit their free agency prime, they're not going to be 29, 30. They're going to be 26, 27. And they're already going to have a huge resume to boot. That's why these young teams and with the oldest talent, even the Nats, and I understand the Nats now, they're entrenched and they've had now some tough history here, especially in the postseason in recent memory. But, you know, just look at the young players that they've had on their team. The Bryce Harpers, Anthony Rendones, now the Trey Turners, Steven Strasburgs. When you have those guys in your fabric. Now, I understand Strasburg's not an everyday player, but you get my point. Just like the Cubs did with all the young players. Then they had to get pitching. You know, they had to get guys to come over and be a part of the staff, whether it was guys like John Lester, John Lackey, you know, to add to the mix. But they that went ahead, like I mentioned, Chris Bryant, the Javier Baez's of the world, the Kyle Schwarbers. You know, when you have those pieces in place, that's where you go places. And the younger, the better. You know, you don't want to have a guy that's going to blossom at 26. You want to have that guy blossom at 22, even maybe 21, which is Gleyber Torres is doing. And then the other thing is, too, and I'm not trying to throw cold water on Torres because we know he has the ability, so I'm not trying to knock him per se, but you got to wonder, for a guy that's batting ninth in the batting order, you know, do these pitchers look at him as a ninth-place hitter? You know, he's on a stacked deck that, not to say he's going to be forgotten by any stretch, But because he's not in the mix of that murderer's row of that Judge, Stanton, Sanchez, Gregorius, you know, he's not in that mix. And again, with the way the batting orders are, even if you're a ninth place hitter, it's almost having a double leadoff. And I get that. But because he's come here and because not much is expected out of him, you know, it's not like if Gleyber Torres is coming to the Mets where he's expected to be the savior where there's extra pressure. And it looks like pressure, this kid eats it for breakfast. But my point is, is that because he's been at the bottom of the order, and not to say he's forgotten, because a lot of teams know when you look at the scouting report, wow, this Gleyber Torres, look what he's done. He's batting 330. He's had seven home runs, 20 RBIs. You know, he's done so much here in just a short amount of time that they're going to overlook him. But at the same time, because he's not in the middle of that order, because he's not the guy that, ah, you know, I guess a lot of teams will look at it and say, all right, we need to focus on these guys and not this guy. And then all of a sudden, Torres is hitting balls out of the ballpark. So I wonder if it's a thing where because there's no pressure and nothing's expected of him, he's having this 
particular output. Whereas if he was supposed to be the guy to come here and be the man and be the savior and be the face of this franchise, would it be any different? Probably not. And of course, it's all hypothetical. But it's interesting just to think about if you put a guy like that, Torres, in a lineup like this, he's going to benefit more than if you put him in a lineup that is from hunger like the Mets. Just a little food for thought. That's why I do this show. That's why we have these debates. That's why we have these types of discussions. And I understand people may say, Jay Rose, you're off your rocker. Come on. Torres can play on any team, anytime. Oh, absolutely. I'm not trying to say the kid's not a major leaguer. I'm not trying to say the kid is a flash in the pan by any stretch. But I would think part of his success is because of the lineup that he's in. I mean, people, don't you think? You know, we talk about Bill Belichick full of his greatness and how players could just go up there. I mean, you could put me at linebacker or put me at running back and I'll have an 1,000-yard season. Or I'll catch 80 passes and be in a Pro Bowl. It's part of the system. If Torres was the only guy or one of two guys, I'm sure it'd be a lot different. And maybe he would look at it as, hey, this is my job. He's carefree. He's going to do what he wants to do. All right, I get that. That's fine. But at the same time, I'm sure it's a lot easier to come into a situation knowing that I got, geez, I got Stanton, I got Sanchez, I got Judge, I got Didi, I got veteran leadership like Gardy. I have uh, other veteran leadership, you know, Neil Walker, you know, another young guy to the right of me, and uh, Miguel Andujar. I mean, geez, Tyler Austin. I mean, when does it stop? That's my point, people, so. As far as uh, justify goals, well, he wins the Preakness in the fog. You got to wonder. The Kentucky Derby was in a slop, rainy mess two weeks ago. Then just this past Saturday, down in Pimlico, he wins in a fog. And you kind of wonder what the weather's going to be like that first Saturday in June, or really the second Saturday because it's June 8th, what that's going to be like for justify as he goes for history. And to think, how many years that we hadn't had a Triple Crown winner? What was it, affirmed in 78, and then it was 37 years until American Farrell did it three years ago, and now here we go. Here we are three years later. We have Justify on the precipice of a Triple Crown, and it's good for the sport. Listen, I'm not a horse racing guy at all. I mean, please. You know, I, I couldn't tell you Justify from the next horse. But the point of the matter is, is that when you have a horse that's going for history, and especially with that event being pretty much in your backyard at the Belmont racetrack, it brings a little excitement. You know, wherever I'm at in that Saturday afternoon, there's a part of me thinking, oh, wait a minute, at 620, Justify's going to be going for the Triple Crown. And that's what makes it exciting. You know, you're going to have 100,000 people at that track. It's going to be a big event. I understand it may take a little bit of this thing away because American Pharaoh did it after 37 years. And the longer you have a drought, it's going to attract that much more attention. And here it is three years later, you have this horse that's about to do it again. But this horse has been dominant in its first two races. We all know that track is a mile and a half. It's not a mile and 316 as it was in Pimlico. So something to look forward to here in the weeks to come. It's going to be two weeks from this Saturday, so it's not every other week as it has been. Because usually the first Saturday is the run of the roses in May, two weeks after that, and then the Preakness, and then three weeks after that would be the Belmont. So we certainly have some time to chew on that between now and then. 
Uh, also, my old radio partner, just a real quick update. I know a lot of people are probably wondering or probably people have been thinking, yeah, where's he going to get his old partner on? And for those who don't know, who are listening for the first time, uh, I did a radio show, an internet radio show back in the late uh, 2000s into the 2010s or whatever you want to call it, where uh, we did a show on Block Talk Radio. In fact, a lot of our old programs are still on iTunes. So if you go to Apple Podcasts and you type in J Reel's Final Word or the Final Word with J Reel's and JD, you'll see all of our shows. We did over 200. In fact, I think close to 250, if I'm not mistaken. Well, J.D. I actually spoke to. He's in good spirits. He's in good health. He actually had a uh, little bit of a health issue. He had some surgery. Thankfully, it was, wasn't anything life-threatening. But uh, he's actually doing well, and I hope to get him on the podcast. I would love to get him on the podcast before the NBA Finals, knock on wood, if the Celtics make it, because he's a huge Celtic fan. And we could certainly chew on that, as well as a bunch of other things going on in sports and kind of reminisce a little bit. And J.D. is probably, if not the biggest sports fan I know, He's one of them. I mean, he's just, we were cousins. I mean, we're related. You know, that's all we do when we get together. It's like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Oh, my God, you hear about this trade? Oh, my God, did you see that victory? I mean, then we just talk sports, it seems like, the rest of the time. So I'm hoping to get him on in the weeks to come or maybe sometime next week. So definitely keep an eye on that. Now, I'm also working on a couple of other guests, too, as far as some uh, old former NFL players. And I know I've been working on one of them for quite some time. But, again, trying to schedule this isn't easy. It's a little tricky, and especially when you're just a whippersnapper like me, especially in the podcast universe, uh, it could be a little bit uh, tricky, and obviously a little bit. Uh, it could be a little bit of a challenge. So, uh, if you, as long as you're patient with me, as long as you stick with me, guys, I certainly greatly appreciate it. And also, with that being said, obviously any information regarding the program, uh, future guests, anything, uh, you could go to jreels.com, where you'll have uh, all the programs here. All of my archive shows will be on the website. Also, all of my social media accounts, whether it's Facebook at the J Reels Podcast, J Reels on Instagram, and J Reels One on Twitter. Certainly follow me on those. I talk more sports on the J Reels One, the Twitter account. Same as Facebook, but you know I kind of mix it up. So uh, certainly uh, keep yourself abreast with those accounts. You want to send me an email, please do so at the J Reels Podcast.com. Oh, excuse me, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Got a little bit ahead of myself there. Obviously, people, and which would be of the utmost importance and would certainly be grateful is that if you subscribe to the program, not only on uh, iTunes, also Apple Podcasts. I know they're one and the same, but still I have to throw that in there. I know I've been mentioning iTunes, but now Apple has a podcast section. So certainly go there, go to your phone, hit podcast, especially an iPhone. You just go type in the J Reels podcast, hit subscribe. You'll get all the updates pretty much an hour after you know I release them. Not only that, but also on Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher. Feel free to share that with your friends, family, other sports fans, uh, people who l- love sports, hate sports, or just getting into sports, whatever it may be. Uh, and I say hate sports because people may say, why would people want to go do, you know, listen to your show if they hate sports? Well, hey, you never know. Maybe I could turn them around and actually get them to like sports because if I love sports and somebody hates it, maybe I could just get them just a smidge to like it. So obviously, people, please jump on that, leave a review, leave a rating. Your participation is uh, certainly, certainly, I can't stress it enough. You know, whatever you do as far as uh, ratings and posting up a, a review is important to the program because not only does it, not only does it make it visible in the podcast universe, but the more people subscribe, the more it will attract people to the website. It will attract it to the podcast, and therefore, in turn, 
will generate more guests than even better guests. And not to say that the guests that I have are chopped liver by any stretch of the imagination, but yes, if I'm trying to get that bigger guy, if I'm trying to get that athlete, that broadcaster, that writer, whomever it may be, not only will it be a phone conversation, but what I'm hoping to do is to be face-to-face, right across from one another, to get that crystal clear sound, to get that interview literally live, direct, and in full effect at that time so I could broadcast it to the world and share it with the world because that's why I'm here. This is my love. This is my passion. This, be- this becomes second nature when it comes to doing something that you love, and I only hope that you could find whatever it is that you're doing and bring that same love, bring that same passion because you know what? Whatever it is that you're going to put out in the universe is only going to be a positive thing. And not that I'm trying to make this into a spiritual, you know, namaste type of thing. But my point is, is that because I love to do this, because this has been just a lifelong endeavor in doing so, as long as you help me a little bit, just a little bit, by hitting subscribe and posting ratings and reviews, will just go a long way. And as I've said time and time again, without you people, there's no J-Rolls podcast. And this is why I'm here to bring you all that's going on with the latest and greatest in the world of sports. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time, have a great, safe Memorial Day weekend. And until then, on the flip, baby.